let me just uh, take a moment to pray and then we can uh, just focus on God's word. So Father, we, we pray that uh, you would take uh, this moment as we unpack what your word says. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that we would be open to receive what you have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that we would be challenged and transformed and that we would go into this Easter weekend with fresh confidence in all that you are to us and all that you have done for us. So would you bless this time? Would you be with us? In Jesus' name, amen. So again, I just want to say a massive thanks to everyone who's contributed to the service. Um, it makes such a difference to have just a number of folk within the Life of Church involved as part of the service. It just gives us a, a fuller experience as a whole body works together in various ways. Um, what we're going to do tonight is think and reflect upon the different encounters that Jesus has from, from the beginning of chapter 15 uh, right up until the end of the chapter, his own death. Uh, and there are three encounters that Mark highlights in this gospel. And no doubt there were more encounters, uh, but these are the ones that Mark wanted to bring out and show the whole world. So we're going to focus on these three encounters. And in each of these encounters, we learn something of how broken and messed up we are uh, as a humanity. So we see this passage, we see all that takes place, and it's just a fresh reminder that we do need Jesus. We are broken. Uh, we all fall short in various ways. We do need his grace. Uh, these encounters are the story of one individual and two other groups, and they get it completely wrong when it comes to the person and work of Jesus. And without question, they miss a mark as to who Jesus is and how they ought to respond to him. Even as they look at Jesus right in the eye, as they speak to him face to face, as they see him, they completely miss the mark when it comes to understanding who he is. All of which I hope reminds us tonight that we can be so near to Jesus and yet so far away. We can be so convinced about who Jesus is, and yet we can get him so completely wrong. Uh, we see this with the first encounter, the encounter of Pilate and Jesus. So we're, we're going to describe Pilate as the non-religious Pilate, the non-religious Pilate. Uh, in verse 2, the elders, the scribes, the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests, have now handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities. And so here we have Jesus with the Roman official Pilate. He was in charge of Jerusalem and the surrounding region. And this is what we read in Mark 15 and verse 2. Pilate says this. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And what a question that is for us to reflect on tonight. As we think about Jesus, king of the Jews. Um, it's important we know that Pilate asked that question for a reason. There was a particular purpose for why he did this. The reason is rooted and what took place between Jesus and the religious leaders before he was handed over to Pilate. Um, these leaders had not handed Jesus over to Pilate because of blasphemy. That would have made no difference to Rome. Rome would not have cared uh, if Jesus was being blasphemous. These leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate for one simple reason. They said that he claimed to be king of the Jews. Uh, and they knew that in Pilate's eyes, this would have carried some degree of significance as a Roman official. The king of the Jews, it was a title that the wise men used for Jesus back in chapter 2. If you remember just a few months back, we had Christmas. The wise men spoke of the king of the Jews. And if you remember, when King Herod heard this title being used, we read, he was deeply disturbed 
and all Jerusalem with him. So why was Herod disturbed by this? The title pointed to someone who was or who would be supreme leader over the entire Jewish people. So Herod was threatened by that. And so many people who had connection with Herod were also threatened. And depending on who you spoke to, this leadership would either be political or messianic. For non-Jewish people, the king of the Jews was a supreme political leader for all the Jews. For the Jewish people, the king of the Jews referred to the Messiah. And Messiah simply means anointed one. In the Old Testament, kings in Israel were literally anointed with oil. Literally anointed with oil. And that was a sign of God choosing them to lead his people. So when these religious leaders hand Jesus over to Pilate, they do so because they say he's claiming to be king of the Jews. And to them, that was blasphemous. He was claiming to be Messiah, and they didn't believe he was. But to Pilate, he would have understood this accusation as someone who was a political leader. Someone who was trying to overthrow Rome and Jerusalem and, and the surrounding region. How that same title can have completely different connotations, leading to completely different implications and understandings as to who someone is. And look how it is that Jesus answers Pilate here. Second part of verse 2, in response to the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus simply says this, you say so. You say so. So, as we see from Jesus in this moment, he is not giving much away here. He is neither agreeing that Pilate's claim is true, nor is he denying this claim. Pilate must have been left in this particular moment, scratching his head as to who he was, who this Jesus was. And so frustrated as Pilate, he asked Jesus this question in verse 5. Are you not going to answer? Are you not going to answer Jesus? Look how many things they're accusing you of. So Pilate is almost drawn alongside Jesus and wanting him to answer in the correct way. Pilate uses this phrase, King of the Jews, on three occasions in total. On the second occasion, he says before the crowd who have gathered to see Jesus tried, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Then finally, shortly after this, he says again to the crowd, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? So three times, Pilate refers to Jesus in this way. And the gospel writers never tell us this explicitly, but you can sense from how the gospels are written, Pilate is not convinced of Jesus' guilt. In fact, he is deeply cynical of these leaders' attempt to have Jesus tried and killed. But that doesn't deter them. It's clear from Mark's gospel that people do not want Jesus released. It's crystal clear. In fact, quite the opposite. They shout again and again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So what does Pilate do here? How does Pilate respond? Does he go with the crowd? Or does he go with his own conviction as to what is right? And does he even have a conviction? Does Pilate even have a conviction as to what is right? Because in John's gospel, he asked Jesus, what is truth? Perhaps his conscience is so tainted and seared, he has no understanding as to what is right or wrong. For Pilate, up is down and down is up. Pilate makes a decision. And in making this decision, we get a, a glimpse, we get a window into what is going on in Pilate's own heart. Mark 15, 15, we read these words. Uh, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, Pilate knew that Jesus was completely innocent. He knew he wasn't a blasphemer. He knew he wasn't attempting some kind of uh, political or 
military coup, but he also knew that the most convenient thing for him to do at this particular moment in the city of Jerusalem was to have Jesus crucified. This was most convenient for Pilate. And it's why we read in Mark's Gospel that in condemning Jesus to his death, he did so because he was what he was wanting to satisfy the crowds. This was Pilate's motivation. It was most convenient to Pilate. It was most comfortable for Pilate. This was most conducive for someone whose priority was getting the best outcome for himself. We've given Pilate the adjective non-religious here. And non-religious in a sense that he wanted to compartmentalize Jesus. Uh, Pilate did not want any kind of relational connection with Jesus. He didn't want any kind of emotional connection with Jesus. He simply wanted him to be one of many tasks to be completed at the end of a busy week. So the truth was, was not really Pilate's priority. It was not Pilate's priority at all, as we see. Pilate's priority was task completion. And so Jesus was executed. And maybe this is a window into our own hearts tonight. As we think about the life of Pilate, perhaps this is a glimpse as to who we are or who we can be. So I wonder, would you describe your life in such a way that Christ has been compartmentalized? Christ has been compartmentalized. Compartmentalized in a sense that you think you can place Jesus into this small category in your life. And like Pilate, perhaps Jesus is one of many different things on your agenda. Like Pilate, perhaps there's no emotional connection with Jesus so that your life is completely changed and transformed by him. Like Pilate, perhaps Jesus has been handed over to be crucified from your life so that you don't need to look at him anymore. The non-religious Pilate, I wonder if you would describe yourself from time to time in the same way. One where you say, Jesus is not my treasure, my job, my family, my hobby, my circumstances, my feelings, my fill in the gap tonight. What's more important to you that comes before Jesus? So we're non-religious in a sense. We do not want to know Jesus or live for him. But maybe we're not like Pilate tonight. Maybe we're more like the second one, the second group, the rebellious soldiers, the rebellious soldiers. Uh, Jesus was condemned to be crucified by the crowd and, and by Pilate. And we read in the next part of Mark's narrative that the soldiers uh, led him away. The soldiers led him away. And without question, as we've taken time to understand this chapter, this part is not an easy read for us. It's uncomfortable to hear of what it is that happened to Jesus before he was crucified, but it's important. It's difficult, but it's important for us to read and understand what was going on here. We read in verse 16, the soldiers all gathered together as one company and effectively they surrounded Jesus. Verse 17, Mark describes how they dressed him in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They forced that crown of thorns into Jesus' skull. In verse 18, we read that these soldiers started to mock him with this fake coronation. They saluted him, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, we read that they hit him on the head with a stick. They spat on him. They get down on their knees in mockery and they pay homage to him. And in verse 20, Mark writes that after they had finished mocking him, they stripped him of his purple robe. They put his clothes back on him. The ceremony was over. And what can we say? about this moment, about, about these words that we've just reflected on. 
about what happened here. Again, the soldiers use that title. Have you used that same title, King of the Jews? Just as the wise men had used that title, just as Pilate used that title, the soldiers used that title as well. But these soldiers used that title differently. For them, the King of the Jews is a way of mocking. It's a way of, of ridiculing, of sneering at Jesus, of showing nothing but contempt for him. For the soldiers, if Jesus really was King of the Jews, then he wouldn't be in front of them at this particular moment. The soldiers are, by definition, rebellious. Rebellious in the sense that they reject Jesus. They reject who he is. They reject what he has done. And the main way that they express that rejection is through mocking him. In fact, it's more than them making a mockery of Jesus. The soldiers, the soldiers actually dehumanize Jesus uh, into an object uh, to be laughed at, to be joked, uh, to be scorned at. Um, Jesus takes it all. Jesus takes all of us upon himself. And he does that because he realizes uh, that this is a path that he needs to take in order to get to the cross. For Jesus to journey to the cross, he has to take this path. So Jesus allowed this to happen. He could have stopped it at any moment, but he allowed it to happen. He allowed these soldiers to take him away. He allowed these soldiers to dress him in a purple robe. He allowed these soldiers to drive a crown of thorns into his skull. He allowed these soldiers to mock him with a fake coronation. He allowed these soldiers to hit him with a stick. He allowed these soldiers to spit on him. He allowed these soldiers to mockingly pay homage to him. And he allowed all of us because he loves you. He loves you. So tonight as you sit here in this service on Good Friday, ask yourself this question. Who else would do that for you? Who else? would do what Jesus did as we've read in these words. No one loves you the way that Jesus loves you. Not even those people who are closest to, you, closest to you in your life. As you think of Christ's sacrifice, as you reflect on his commitment to you so that you could have life, there is no one in your life on this earth who would do what Jesus has done for you. And this is what Jesus says in John 15, verses 12 to 13. He says, This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And this is what Jesus did. He laid down his life for each one of us. He calls us his friends because he laid down his life for us. And in laying down his life for us, he shows us how much he really does love us. He shows us his compassion towards us, his care for us, his desire for us to be restored back to him. He loves us like no one else loves us. Amen? Amen? The incredible truth for us from this passage is that Jesus died for each one of us. And Jesus also died for each one of his soldiers as well. So as they, they treated him with contempt, as they mocked him, Jesus died for every single one of his soldiers who did that. The ones who surrounded him, bet him, mocked him, were the ones he came to save as well. And we will never know this side of eternity if any of these soldiers did in fact come to faith in Christ. I'm always an optimist, so I'm hopeful that perhaps there was maybe one or two who after this moment and after seeing all that took place beyond this moment came to a realization of who Jesus was and came to faith. We don't know. It's going to be a really interesting heaven. If there, if there is a few 
But we do know this side of eternity. If we are in Christ today, that Christ is with us. And deep down we know that something of this rebellion that these soldiers had at times has been past or present, has been our own rebellion. So as we see this rebellion from the soldiers, we see something of this rebellion in our own lives, if we're being brutally honest. And we may not have openly mocked Christ as they did, but our past actions remind us that we are rebels. We are all rebels. And we have rejected from time to time his kingship. We have rejected his lordship over our lives. And it is only by the, <clears throat> by the grace of God that we can stand here tonight and worship and praise. And we can recognize all that God has done for us in Christ this Good Friday. His death has become our death. His life has become our life. All of which leads us on to Jesus' next encounter. The religious chief priests and the scribes. We read that Jesus is led out to be crucified. <clears throat> and in verse 21, Mark highlights that such is Jesus' pain and suffering that he can no longer carry the cross himself. So Jesus has been through so much, it's impossible for him to carry this cross. They force Simon of Cyrene to take the cross for him. Simon carries the cross. We read in verse 22, Jesus is brought to the place called Golgotha, the place where he will, he will meet his death. They surround Jesus as he's crucified. They divide his clothes and cast lots for him. Mark tells us in verses 25 to 26 that it was, it was nine in the morning. And the inscription that was over Jesus as he was crucified, it's that same title, King of the Jews. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And the crowd mock him relentlessly, saying if he really was who he said he was, then he would come down from his cross. And it's here that the chief priests and scribes, as they stand amongst the crowd, as they mock him, as they ridicule him, they cry out, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Now, we have to understand who these guys were. These were an ordinary folk. These chief priests and scribes were regarded as the religious and cultural leaders of their day. These were like archbishops. If anyone had a question about scripture, they would turn to these individuals. These men knew their Bibles, often from memory. They were passionate about living out this religious and pure life as a way of displaying strict adherence to Judaism. And yet they completely failed to see the Messiah, as Jesus walked, as Jesus talked, as Jesus lived, as he ate amongst them, and even as he died in front of them, they could not see him. They could not see him. So the question we need to ask tonight is, how could a group that knew so much, that knew their Bibles more than anyone else, how could they get it so completely wrong? You know, that's a danger for us. We can, we can know our Bibles, we can memorize our Bibles, but unless our heart is soft, and tender and drawn towards Christ and the things of Christ, then we can also be like these Pharisees and get it completely wrong. The answer to that is very simple. As we ask this question, how can they get it wrong? Despite what they presented to those around them, their heart was not for God or the things of God. Their heart was for their own spiritual achievement, 
and performance. And they loved the fact they could display this in front of other people as a way of making much of themselves. Ultimately, it wasn't about worship of God. It was about worship of them from other people within their community. Look at what Jesus says of them. Matthew 23 in verses 5 to 7, also in verse 13, Jesus says this, They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. So Jesus says, those, those who don't have a heart for me, those who know my word but don't have a heart for me, they're a, a huge, a highly significant and obvious obstacle from the people getting to know me as themselves. And you know, you and I can so often be like these chief priests and scribes. Uh, we can also we can stand before the cross of Christ and still think it's about us. We can still think it's about our performance and all that we've achieved up to this point. We can pat ourselves in the back when we've done our Bible reading. We can say, well done if we attend church or a, a ministry. We can focus on ourselves. And this, in essence, is a religious spirit. We make the center of the Christian faith about us. And in the process, we have a potential to then denigrate others. And over all of us, we nullify what Christ has done in Calvary. Because our focus is on ourselves. Our focus is not looking upward and outward to all that Christ has done for us. Our focus is on ourselves. And tonight, I want us to be aware of how easy and how dangerous it is for you and I to be so near the cross and yet so far from his grace and his love. And this evening, I invite you to ask this question of your own life as you identify whether or not you are in fact religious in this negative sense. Do you fix your eyes on what it is you have done for God in terms of how much you are obeying day after day? Is that your focus? Or do you fix your eyes on what it is that God has done for you <clears throat> in terms of how far he went for you by dying on the cross for you? It has to be the second one. It has to be the latter. We have to fix our eyes on what God has done for us in Christ. And for us to focus on ourselves is for us to completely miss the point of Easter and who Jesus is and why he came and what he has done for us and what we can receive as a result of his gracious gift to us. The fact of the matter is, the more we focus on ourselves, the more and more it's going to drive us either to pride or despair. It's one of two pathways. We're either going to feel prideful at how well we think we're doing, or we're going to experience despair at how much we fall short. But God doesn't want the eyes of our heart to be firmly fixed on ourselves. He wants the eyes of our heart to be firmly fixed on him. Because as Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, he is the author of our faith. He's the one, it was God's idea that, that you have faith. He initiated this faith. He started this plan of salvation for you and for me. But it continues, he is the perfecter of our faith. He started it and he will finish it. So praise God, Jesus will see us through to the, to the very end. 
We don't have to worry as we look at our lives. We don't have to worry or feel overwhelmed by what it is we're facing or how, how much we might be failing in some way. We can look at the entirety of our lives and say, Christ started this and Christ will finish it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So these are three encounters that Jesus has as he journeyed to the cross and as he died on the cross. And there's one more I want to mention tonight. This encounter stands out from all the rest because in this encounter, we discover someone who really did get it. The repentant centurion, number four. Uh, Mark tells us from verse 33 onwards, that at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the crowd thought he was calling for Elijah in this moment. They filled a sponge with sour wine. They had sympathy for Jesus as he died on the cross. They put the sponge in a stick. They offered Christ a drink. And Jesus lets out a loud cry. Jesus breathes his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. A symbol of the fact that the old law has passed. The new covenant has now begun. And it's here that we read of this final encounter. This final encounter between Jesus and someone else. Mark writes, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, this Good Friday, I want to invite you to imagine being in a position of this centurion. Just take a moment to picture yourself as a centurion, which is maybe difficult to imagine, but imagine standing opposite the cross and watching all that was unfolding, you have most likely been given responsibility for the safety of this entire operation. There's no doubt you've probably been witness to hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions before this one. But you see how this man You see how this man dies on the cross and you see something different. <clears throat> this was no ordinary man and there is more to this crucifixion than meets the eye. The way in which he dies speaks deeply to this centurion's soul. Something within him is awakened suddenly it becomes clear who he really was. And, and Luke records in his gospel in Luke 23 and 47, when the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God saying, this man really was righteous. So tonight, what you and I need to understand is that the centurion's witness of Christ led to worship of Christ. When he saw Christ, and when he saw his own life in the light of Christ, it drove him to that place of repentance and faith. And as he gazed at Jesus, as he looked at the death of Jesus, he caught a glimpse of who Jesus really was. And he could not help but worship God with all that he had in that particular moment. So for you and I, the more and more we take time to reflect on our Lord Jesus hanging on a cross, 
he actually died for your sin and for my sin. The more we reflect on that, the more and more I hope this would cause us to then worship him. I hope it will cause us to then rejoice in him. I hope this Good Friday, it will cause you to give thanks for all that he has done for you. Because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And today I've been reflecting on Good Friday and I've been really impacted by these words uh, of a poem <clears throat> by John Newton. And I just, as we close, I just want to invite us to, to think and reflect on these words by Newton, the guy who, who penned Amazing Grace. He wrote this poem, An evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus while his death my sin displays, in all its blackest hue, such is a mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, <clears throat> my spirit now is filled. But I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Amen. And tonight, as we respond uh, with worshipful hearts and thanksgiving, we're going to come to the table. Uh, and it's because of Good Friday that we are not just one with God, we are one with one another. Um, and that should cause us tonight to both remember and rejoice with reverence in our hearts of all that Christ has done for us. So this, this is a, a good day for us to rejoice, to remember, to give thanks. And we can live in light of this, this amazing gift that God has given to us beyond this Easter weekend, into next week, into May, into the rest of this year, into the rest of our lives. My hope and prayer is that as, as individuals, as a church family, we would constantly be thankful for this incredible gift that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and for me. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So as we take this bread on Good Friday, and as we drink this cup on Good Friday, we are proclaiming the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross until he returns. So let us together this Good Friday take time to comprehend all that Jesus is, as the centurion comprehended in that moment all that Christ was, may we also do the same. May we gaze at Jesus and gaze at his perfect sacrifice on the cross 
And in doing that, let us take the bread and drink this cup with a renewed appreciation of how much he loves us, of how much he cares for every single one of us in this very moment.